Welcome back, everyone. I am here with a very special guest, Dr. Colm Kelleher, who has extensive experience doing experiments on Skinwalker Ranch, both during the time that NIDS was on the branch, as well as when the Defense Intelligence Agency also conducted an investigation of the activity there. Colm, welcome. Good to be here. All right. Now, I was just telling Dr. Kelleher before this interview that we're not, if you don't know what Skinwalker Ranch is, go somewhere else, because we're going to assume that everybody has a basic working knowledge. Uh, a good place to start would be reading the book, The Hunt for the Skinwalker, and then Skinwalkers of the Pentagon. Colm is a co-author of both James Lukatsky and George Knapp yeah. on Skinwalkers of the Pentagon. And then on the First book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, it's just you and George. So definitely check those out. You'll be able to answer most of these questions. Most of the questions I have are based on those two books. Okay, so again, I'm going to dive. I warned you, Colm. I'm going to dive really specific. All right, so when you conducted research at the uh, the Yuna Basin, did you ever run any experiments on the impact of infrasound on the human body? So for context... There's a phenomena in Big Sur out here in California called the Dark Watchers. It's in Steinbeck's work. There's a short story where he mentions them. There are reports that go all the way back to the 1800s and possibly before. And there's just these shadowy figures that are seen around twilight. And one alternative scientific explanation behind that phenomena is infrasound, which is sound that human eardrums would feel the impact of, but would not detect the frequency since this is a lower frequency for human hearing. However, there have been maybe one study or, I don't know, some studies out there that suggest that intrasound can sometimes cause feelings of paranoia, confusion, or generally just cause people to hallucinate. So did you do anything like that during the NIDS period? Short answer is no, but we certainly discussed it. As you know, a world-class science advisory board associated with NIDS that had a lot of physicists, a lot of engineers, a lot of medical doctors that were concerned about juries and that kind of thing. So there was a lot of discussion during the NIDS science advisory board meetings, which actually were occurred very, very commonly. And the NIDS staff were in the position of briefing the Science Advisory Board on a regular basis. So, yeah, infrasound uh, experimentation did come up, but it was never actualized. It was never executed. But, yeah, we were aware that infrasound was a metric that in the future should be measured on Skinwalker Ranch, but we never actually did it. Other aspects like ground penetrating radar were also Mm -hmm. discussed on the property, and we were gearing up for that when NIDS basically shut down. The United States government decided that during the later OSAP period, they didn't want to delve too deeply into ground penetrating radar or too much sensor technology. We had the basics of sensor technology during the OSAP program that was analogous to what we had during the NIDS program on the ranch. And that was just your basic electromagnetic sensors, some radioactivity, alpha, beta, gamma sensors. We picked up almost nothing in the alpha, beta, gamma ranges. There's a a sort of a lore in the UFO arena 
where low levels of radioactivity have been reported. The secrets of Skinwalker Ranch have reported relatively high levels of gamma radiation that are sporadically present on the ranch. We actually tested pretty well in a grid pattern all over the the 500-acre property. We tested for alpha, beta, gamma radiation, but we never actually detected any. So a short answer to your question is no. So there's another incident that you report in the Hunt for the Skinwalker book. And this happened, I believe, before NIDS. But I know that you did a detailed investigation of the the family. I think the the Shermans or the Shermans is the actual name of the Gormans is the code name. Yeah, we call them the Gormans. So there was an incident where a stranger showed up on the ranch, just somebody from off the street, not a mysterious stranger of any sort. And it asked Mr. Sherman if he could meditate on the property. And they kind of laughed and said, knock yourself out. And he got a bit of a scare with something that looked like the movie Predator, where you see this shifting image started racing to him and then roared at him in in some sense. Did you ever try to replicate that experiment? We did have people on the property at different times who were meditating. And there's an area on the Skinwalker Ranch calls uh, Homestead Number 2, which is about halfway between the entrance to the property and the very western boundary of the property. So it's located pretty well in the middle. And it, 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 it happens to be the locus of a lot of different activities. So we have had people meditating there. We've had some really interesting sort of sequelae to that kind of an operation. In some cases, meditating produced absolutely nothing, but we had a setup where we had an individual meditating and we were taking photographs of him as he was sitting on the chair within 10 to 15 feet of homestead number two. And in some cases, during the serial photographs that were taken, we saw this extremely dark cloud surrounding this guy and this is on film back in those days we were taking film and it coincided with this guy feeling extremely nauseous extremely sort of ill and then he's inwardly asked for help and the next series of photographs all of that dark shadow that surrounded his head and his body essentially disappeared and so all of the photographs that were seen, you could see a lot of these orb-like structures in the photograph. Now, whether or not these were dust or particles in the air that were reflecting light, we were never able to distinguish between quote-unquote orbs versus particles of dust that were reflecting light. But the bottom line is that this meditation series that this individual undertook went from feeling okay and a set of photographs associated with that, to feeling extremely ill and nauseous and also scared. I mean, he felt something was intruding on him. And the corresponding photographs that showed a very, very dark shadow surrounding him completely. And then the next series of photographs showed the release of that. But 
we've had other occasions where we've had people meditating in that same area and absolutely nothing has happened. So it's not something that you can predict. And that was one of the features about Skinwalker Ranch was that if you set something up in the expectation of an outcome, that outcome was very, very rarely realized. Mm -hmm. For example, sometimes we would have activity on the western part of the, the ranch. So we would gear up with all of our sensor equipment. We had, had a lot of cameras. We had a lot of night vision equipment that would be centered on the western part of the property. And then the next morning, we'd get a report from our neighbors on the eastern part of the property, which is about a mile away, that there was a lot of activity on the eastern part. That became a feature of our investigations during the NIDS era. So it was kind of like a cat and mouse game where we were constantly hunting whatever was on this property and whatever it was, a, an intelligence or an entity became very elusive. But at the same time, we had a lot of dramatic episodes, in-your-face episodes that showed that whatever this was on the property was interacting with us. But then there was these frustrating occasions when we were all set up to gather data and the batteries of our cameras would die simultaneously in four or five different instruments. All of the batteries would suddenly drain. Extremely frustrating when you're actually trying to capture data. Early on, we were frustrated with this, but it became a feature of the investigation that the, this sort of element of cat and mouse uh, of us hunting whatever this was and this quote-unquote intelligence was always one or two steps ahead of us. Almost to the sense that it, whatever it was, would predict what people would do before they knew that they would do in some sense. Yes, there was a precognitive aspect to this. One of the more well-known features of this that happened, we described it in the book Hunt for the Skinwalkers, was the rancher and his wife had four of their prize-winning bulls on the property. And they were in this small little corral right beside what we call Homestead One, which is up on the eastern end of the property. And so the rancher and his wife, knowing what had happened to them the previous sort of 18 months on the property, were driving past the corral on these four magnificent 2,000-pound purebred Angus bulls were peacefully in the corral. And I think the wife said to the husband, it would be a catastrophe if we lost these animals. And so they drove on a four-wheeler to the other end of the ranch, which is about a mile. And on their way back, sort of 30 minutes later, they noticed that the corral was empty. And so they absolutely freaked out because, again, it was almost like something had overheard what they had said, that it would be awful to lose these animals. So they looked in the corral where the animals had been 30 minutes prior, and the corral was absolutely empty. And the rancher, Gorman, was absolutely freaking out. So he jumped out off the four-wheeler, climbed into the corral, and was hunting around for tracks to see if there was any evidence of these animals being stolen or what have we. And there was a very, very small little metallic trailer in the corner of the corral, which was very, very small. As a last resort, he looked into this trailer and there standing 
almost like in a daze were all four animals. Now, this trailer, there was really no way of getting into this trailer at all. So the idea that four 2,000-pound animals who are very aggressive and very bad-tempered would actually obediently climb into this trailer or through a very, very narrow space and then huddle together where they couldn't stand the sight of each other. So Gorman looked in and saw these animals. It was like they were in a daze. He banged the side of the trailer to see what the reaction was. And it was almost like the animals came out of this stupor or this daze and they promptly kicked down the entire side of the trailer to get out. But this was an incident, and we were on the property very shortly after this incident. So we deployed a couple of magnetic field sensors, and we found that the bars of the entire corral were very, very highly magnetized within an hour or two after the event. But the four bulls were safe, but the, the mystery was how four extremely aggressive, bad-tempered animals could have been packed into this tiny, tiny little space, this metallic corral. And it was almost like it was done as a sort of an exercise in psychological warfare against the couple who had just 30 minutes previously said it would be awful to lose these animals. I mean, that was an example of the sort of the cat and mouse games that were played. A lot of these poltergeist kind of phenomena where the wife would arrive home from the, the grocery store with groceries and put them on the table in the kitchen and then go off to do something and come back and all the groceries would be gone and she would be hunting around and then she'd open the microwave and find a whole bunch of groceries stuffed into the microwave for no apparent reason. And this became a sort of a, a feature of this family were psychologically terrorized by whatever this was over the 18-month period. And eventually, as the, this Hunter the Skinwalker book describes, Robert Bigelow in August of 1996 eventually purchased this property and set it up as a paranormal laboratory. But this family were literally terrorized. They had a group of cattle that was like 80 to 85 cattle, and they were all high-end purebred cattle, either Angus or Simmental cattle. And out of 85 animals, they lost, I believe it was like 15 or 16, through either mutilation or these animals just disappeared without trace. And this property is not an easy property to get in and out of. There's only a single entrance. You can come in over the mesa, but I mean, if you're trying to steal cattle, it's going to be tough to get cattle back up over the mesa. There's really only a single entrance and exit in, into this property. So they lost 15 animals out of 85. And sort of with the kinds of margins that ranching has, I mean, that was catastrophic from a financial point of view. They essentially lost their livelihood on that property stories of or experiences with discarnate voices have you had anything personally where you would hear something that you couldn't track or someone that you worked with had an experience like that well in the, during the nids period well during the nids period the rancher and his cousin did have an experience of these discarnate voices but i personally never heard uh, any voices but 
you know, it's interesting. I was standing in this field, a very, very narrow pasture right beside Homestead 2, which is, as I mentioned, in the center of the property. And this was in 1997, summer 1997. One of our investigators had previously taken photographs of strange lights in the area. So the following night, myself and this physicist, Eric Davis, deployed into the small field. And I had a long exposure infrared film camera. He had night vision binoculars. We had a couple of dogs with us as biosensors. So we were standing in, in the middle of this pasture. It was close to midnight, and, and it was in the summer of 1997, when without warning, about 100 feet to our left, this basketball-sized bluish-white light suddenly appeared. It was about 15 feet off the ground. It was within the pasture, obviously within the pasture. So it, it hovered and it moved slightly. I mean, we were transfixed by it because it was very, very bright. And like I said, about the size of a basketball, then it suddenly vanished. So we had these high-intensity flashlights with us that law enforcement use. You can light up a newspaper from a mile, basically, with these things. So we lit up the entire pasture within seconds of this thing disappearing. And nothing, absolutely no evidence. thought maybe somebody was playing some kind of a trick on us. But there was no evidence of anything around after the disappearance of this ball of light. But we were standing in the pasture again after this had happened. And we were obviously on high alert now when the physicist beside me started saying that he was looking through his night vision binoculars. And he started reporting this black shadow that was moving through the tree line. The tree line was about 100 feet in front of us. And I couldn't see it. I didn't have night vision binoculars. He did. And he was watching through the night vision binoculars. But as this black shadowy thing was moving through the trees, speaking of discarnate voices, this guy reported a hostile male voice saying, we are watching you. And this was inside his head because I was standing 10 feet, 15 feet away from him. I didn't hear anything. But he was very clear that he heard this discarnate voice saying, we are watching you in a threatening slash hostile tone of voice. This black shadowy thing that he was watching through night vision binoculars started dissipating and involuting and eventually disappeared. But during that time, he felt that his mind or his brain had been affected to the point that after this voice had talked to him, he felt like something had taken hold of his mind during that period of, of when the, the black shadowy thing was going through the trees. I was taking long exposure photographs at that stage, trying to capture something. The dogs behind us were jammed behind our legs, and both dogs were fixated on exactly the same area that this physicist was fixated on. So it was like the dogs seemed to know that something was going on also. And they were very quiet. They were very intently watching whatever this was. But once this black shadow dissipated, everything seemed to go back to normal. The physicist just wanted to go back to the command and control center because he was pretty well done. Something had affected him 
dramatically. And he's on public record saying that he, he had nightmares for months and months after that event. But that was an example of a discarnate voice that affected this guy. But I, I didn't hear it. You know, I never heard uh, that voice, but it was a very threatening episode to this physicist. Did the physicist ever report what kind of nightmares he was having? Yeah, that they were very oppressive, very sort of invasive nightmares. And they all had to do with this black shadow that he had seen through the trees. There weren't a lot of specifics regarding the nightmares, but he had them for many, many months after that event. During your portion of the investigation, the NIDS period, did you ever get a sense of who the quote unquote we were? Like we are watching you? We were always one step behind uh, whatever this thing was because we never knew what to expect. Any of these events that happened happened very abruptly, very suddenly, and they were never repeated. My background is uh, experimental science and biology and molecular biology, biochemistry, immunology. This guy was a, a physicist who had worked on the Voyager missions very much aligned with the scientific method. And the idea of utilizing the scientific method is, number one, you've got to be able to reproduce a set of experimental data. Well, the events on Skinwalker Ranch were extremely frustrating because they never repeated. And we were always caught off guard or we were always one step behind. So from a scientific perspective, it, it was a very frustrating exercise because our ultimate aim was to capture evidence of this, um, hopefully reproducible evidence, so that eventually we could publish the data in a peer-reviewed journal. So it's a standard operating procedure for conducting science. But we were never able to do this because we were never able to capture reproducible data. During this investigation, did you ever use remote viewing to reconnoiter the Skinwalker Ranch? I know in Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, you guys had included the eight-page remote viewing from Joe McMonagall, but right. prior to that, did you do any remote viewing? Yes, we did, actually, in the early part of 1997. And this was really interesting because there was a consciousness conference that Robert Bigelow had organized just outside Las Vegas. And there was a handpicked uh, team of people who were very much involved in consciousness research. And among them was Joe McMonigle. So I remember being with Robert Bigelow at this conference. And so we approached Joe McMonigle at the conference and he was sitting at a table and we gave him the coordinates of the ranch. And at that time, nothing whatever was known about Skinwalker Ranch. It, it was sort of a pretty secret study. There had been a couple of newspaper articles in 1996, but in general, NIDS had everything pretty well locked down tight in terms of what was actually happening on the property. But anyway, we gave Joe McMonigle the coordinates of, of the property and all he had was latitude and longitude numbers on a table napkin right in front of myself and Robert Bigelow. He drew a perfect representation 
of the ranch. He drew the northern mesa. He drew the, the track along the mesa. He drew the different homesteads. And he pointed out an area that was to be avoided on the property, which was on the southwestern end of the property. He said there was dark energies there, but that was one example of remote viewing on the property. We also had other people that were the remote viewers who actually visited the property and conducted remote viewing during the NIDS era. And we did get some data from these people in terms of mapping out what looked like a series of grid lines. The remote viewers that were involved in this called them energy lines. They were in a grid on the property. Secondarily, we had an individual who was skilled at dousing on the property, and uh, he actually corroborated the remote viewing part of that exercise by also mapping out very similar grid lines. We never actually followed that up because we were more intent on capturing more physical evidence as opposed to remote viewing. But yeah, we did utilize remote viewing during the NIDS era. Now, in your study during the NIDS period, I know that there were blue orbs that were observed and red orbs that were observed. Was there any difference between the two in terms of behavior or what did it matter? <clears throat> yes, uh, the, we characterized three different types of orbs, as you mentioned, blue orbs, uh, red orbs. And we also frequently saw, like the example that I gave just a few minutes ago, these sort of whitish, bluish orbs. We saw these quite frequently around the area of Homestead 2. Multiple different people saw them. But the blue orbs we learned from the rancher that had occupied the property before that these blue orbs were associated with injuries and actually killing of dogs. They were associated with injuries. They were associated with terrifying the ranchers. There was one occasion when the rancher and his wife were were standing outside the property. This was before Nids had purchased the property. When they saw one of these blue orbs in the tree line, maybe 50, 60 feet away, and it was maneuvering around in an intelligent way, it was moving through the branches of the trees, obviously dodging the branches. So it was not a random sort of flight thing. It was obviously maneuvering. So the wife turned on the flashlight and instantly this blue orb dodged out of the way of the the flashlight. So it reacted very strongly to the flashlight. And then it moved uh, in their direction and came within 15 feet of them. And it was at that stage where they started feeling trepidation. This thing was hovering 15 feet away from them, not very high at all off the ground. And they were beginning to feel increasing levels of fear that escalated slowly as time went on. And it was almost like this thing was emanating something that caused tremendous levels of fear within both the husband and the, and the wife. And eventually it reached a crescendo where they were literally so scared that they thought they were going to die. At that stage, I think it was the wife activated the flashlight and the, the object moved away and disappeared. And then once the blue orb had moved away, the level of fear started dissipating. So 
This was an example of these blue orbs being close to to humans, and the results were not very pleasant, to put it mildly. There were other occasions where dogs were incinerated on the property with blue orbs. So in general, blue orbs, we learned that if you see a blue orb, you run like hell, basically, because you want to get out of the immediate vicinity. Red orbs were associated with cattle and horses. They were interfering with cattle and horses. They did not interfere with humans, but they caused a lot of fear and alarm in horses and also in cattle. And the white orbs that we notice much more frequently than the other kinds of orbs did seem to be very innocuous. There didn't seem to be any sort of negativity associated with having these orbs. And throughout the lifetime on the Skinwalker Ranch, literally dozens and dozens of different people have seen these white orbs. They've been photographed multiple, multiple times, and they don't seem to have any negative health effects in general. Now, let me ask a quick question about the landscape slash topography. So two things. The shape of the Uinta Basin, did anybody look at the mathematical properties of that, like where the focal points were, you know, where they focused above the mesa? And then the second question is, does Gilsonite, the deposits of Gilsonite in the region, were you able to find any ties to some of the phenomena that, that could have been influenced by that? Yeah, we were aware of Gilsonite being unique to that area. It's not that commonly found outside the Uinta Basin. However, we were never able to tie the presence of gilsonite to the phenomena. We did conduct a lot of correlation with, for example, seismic activity on the property. We mapped out with the USGS databases and the University of Utah databases in terms of seismic activity to see if there was a correlation between the activity that happened on the ranch versus seismic activity within 100, 200 kilometers of the ranch. We were never able to nail down anything specific. We also looked at wind direction to see if hallucinogenic spores were being blown mm -hmm. over the property or if there was any correlation with wind direction. We found no correlation at all. We actually ended up drinking bottled water all the time on the property because we wanted to make sure that if, if there were hallucinogens in the water, that we were not being subject to those. We did have a variety of hypotheses regarding what was going on on the property. We looked at gravitational anomalies. We looked at magnetic field intensities in the different areas around the Uinta Basin. And again, there was nothing that was obvious regarding the, the ranch because, you know, the ranch was definitely the epicenter of this activity. But one of the other projects that we did was that we circled the, the ranch, started interviewing neighbors, and we meticulously went within a mile or two miles outside the ranch. We interviewed neighbors regarding what they had seen. And it turned out that the ranch was not all that unique, that a lot of these neighbors had actually seen bizarre creatures. They'd had cattle mutilated. They'd had discarnate voices. They'd had poltergeist activity on their property. So 
It turned out that the Skidwalker Ranch was not a unique property. It was just embedded in an area of a lot of anomalous phenomena. And as you probably know, prior to that, and all the way back in the 1970s, a professor from the University of Utah, Frank Salisbury, had written a classic book correlating hundreds of different sightings of UFOs from people who lived in the Uinta Basin. So we knew that the activity had been going on for decades in the Uinta Basin, but it just happened that Skinwalker Ranch was the, the locus of intense monitoring and, and intense both sensors and humans were on the property continuously. And starting in 1994, when the rancher got on the property, all the way through 2016, when Robert Bigelow sold the property to Brandon Fugel, Brandon Fugel's team have really expanded on some of the sensors that, that are being used on the property. But all the way through late 2022, this property has been continuously analyzed and probed and investigated in a way that's probably unlike any other property in the world. We know the Hestelen property in Norway is very famous for a lot of anomalous activities, but primarily Hestelen in Norway, there's remote cameras on the property. There's not a lot of humans that are interacting with whatever is in the Hestelen property, but Skinwalker Ranch has been going for 20, what, 26 years, 27 years, continuously. So it's probably the most studied paranormal hotspot in the world. All right. Let me jump to the DIA period, because there's just still a ton of questions I, I, I want to try to get to. So the first, hopefully it's a quick question, and this is anecdotal. I want to see if you've had this experience. The phenomenon seems to attack people that could be perceived as warriors. So I think there was an incident that Brandon Fugel related about some old Hell's Angel guy that was targeted. There's the story in your book about the two intelligence operatives who also had that feeling of fear, but they saw a void through their night vision goggles. And I think the whole Axelrod experience, right? Is that accurate or are there just not enough data points to suggest that? Well, we think it's very compelling because, as you mentioned, the Defense Intelligence Agency got involved with this and we obtained funding of $22 million over a 27-month period that was funneled through the Defense Intelligence Agency in order to analyze the UFO phenomenon in general. Now, a very small part of that whole program, which was a very large program involving 50 separate people that were hired for the program, very small part of that program was the examination of Skinwalker Ranch as a, a laboratory of UFO activity and associated activity, the so-called paranormal activity. So as part of the due diligence of this, DIA deployed on different occasions about five separate individuals on the property in order to take a look-see and perhaps corroborate some of the really wild stories that they'd heard regarding Skinwalker Ranch, because they had already read the book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, so they were aware so long story short, all five of the military intelligence people 
that were deployed by DIA on the property had very in-your-face activity happen to them. And not only that, but once they got on the plane and they flew back to their homes, they found within a week or two or sometimes a month that there would be a lot of paranormal activity happening in their households. Now, interestingly, mostly this paranormal activity was happening not to them, but to their families. So wives and children, they'd be waking up at night and these dark, shadowy humanoids would be leaning over their beds. They would wake up in the middle of the night and see these sometimes bizarre creatures out in the backyard. The kids especially saw daylight sightings of this bizarre creature. I'm talking about the Axelrod kids. There were and other... And this is the, bi the bipedal dog-like or... Exactly. Creature, I mean, right? there's a, a lore that is centered in Michigan, actually, but in many, many states in the United States where the so-called dogmen appear. Well, this creature that Axelrod, his wife and his two children saw on separate occasions one of them at night and one of them in broad daylight, saw this upright standing wolf-like creature uh, on their property. And for a dog-like creature to stand and run on two legs is anatomically impossible. So there's something very, very bizarre. Either their perception was being manipulated. However, they saw this animal kicking up leaves in the property as it was running. And also when the family went out later to examine the tree line where one of these creatures was standing, they saw very prominent claw marks on the bark of the tree. And so the implication is that these creatures that were seen were not necessarily figments of the imagination of these people. Because remember, Axelrod himself was a very highly cleared individual, TSSCI clearances. The family was very psychologically stable. The wife was a sort of a long-term nurse, had a very good medical background. So th these people were not given to flights of fancy. And so the combination of the bizarre occurrences that these people saw together with what appeared to be like physical evidence said that these were more than figments of their imagination. Something actually real was happening on their property. Not only that, the kids kept very quiet about these bizarre events that were happening, but they noticed that their neighbors and their school friends started reporting strange creatures outside their homes. They started reporting orbs flying through their homes. So it was almost like the original axelrod had been infected by something on Skinwalker Ranch, had brought something to his home, and the wife and the kids were infected. And then further on, out into the neighborhoods, people started seeing these bizarre phenomena where they had never seen anything like that before. So we hypothesize in the book that whatever this is was behaving like an infectious entity. You know, my background is in virology and immunology. And so you look at what happened with COVID, the way COVID infected one person and then transmitted to another in a parallel way. And I, I'm the first to say that the N is very small. The, the, the numbers in this yeah. whole thing are very small. Well, the the so R-naught is three, right? The R-naught is, 
the R naught of this epidemiological model, yes. according to your book, is three, which is actually similar to SARS, COVID, and AIDS. Actually, exactly. So, so, so that's from a very small number, but yeah, if you calculate the the R zero, yeah, you you actually come up with a, about three, which is significant. Obviously, in a future study, hopefully there will be a future study that is analogous to the OSAP program because the OSAP program, in our opinion, established a baseline for the kinds of studies that were possible for looking at the nuts and bolts aspects of UFOs, but also looking at the effects of UFOs on people, which is a very important part of this. You have a whole slew of physiological effects. You have a whole slew of medical effects. Some of these medical effects were pretty dramatic. People got badly injured from being too close to these UFOs. But then you've got psychological effects, and then you've got psychological effects that range into these kinds of paranormal effects associated with what we just talked about, the infectious nature of what was happening on Skinwalker Ranch. And I should also mention that Skinwalker Ranch was not the only locus where we found this infectious nature of the UFO phenomenon. We had other cases where we followed with medical effects in Oregon, for example, where the individuals that were dramatically affected by these blue orbs in Oregon, they crossed the country and kids went back to college. They were sharing a house with roommates in Connecticut. And suddenly all this paranormal activity erupted in their household. So again, this infectious nature, the so-called hitchhiker effect, as it's called in the book, was not only associated with Skinwalker Ranch, it was associated with the UFO phenomenon in general. So speaking of health effects, I'm assuming you're probably familiar with the work of Dr. Gary Nolan out of the Stanford Medical School. I think one of the things he looked at in studying people on the defense side who suffered from either the Havana syndrome and or this paranormal phenomena that they witnessed, there's a change in their brain structure in the caudate potomac. And I think that's where the overlapping of neurons would increase. I don't know if he's ever come to a conclusion if that overlapping of neurons was before or after these experiences, or if they you know, somehow made people more susceptible if they already had them. But what was your experience with Skinwalker Ranch? I, I imagine I think some of the people who were at Skinwalker Ranch their medical files had been examined by Dr. Gary Nolan, but I'm just... Yeah, just there, is, there, there certainly was overlap. Dr. Gary Nolan collaborated closely with Dr. Christopher Green on this project, and there was certainly overlap between the initial cases that were documented associated with Skinwalker Ranch as a prelude. Drs. Green and Nolan dramatically expanded the numbers of people after the very few cases that were documented on Skinwalker Ranch. But the initial cases were documented associated with Skinwalker Ranch, but they have since dramatically expanded the cohort. And now they have examples from over 100 cases. But yes, there certainly is an overlap between the initial cases that were studied by OSAP and then continued and expanded dramatically by Drs. Nolan and Green. On the hitchhiker effect. 
for the calculation of R0, there's typically, I think there's three factors. There's the infectious period, there's the contact rate, and then there's the mode of transmission. Were you able to at least hypothesize what the mode of transmission was for that Hitchhiker effect? No, we weren't. And I, I would say a very important part of any future studies should focus very much on how this is transmitted from people between people. We don't know. We did have this hypothesis that there's a part of the effect of this is not obviously, you know, if, the, if, if we're looking at it as, as a virus, as an infectious entity, then you've got flu symptoms, you've got hemorrhagic fever as normal sequelae to being infected. But being infected with whatever this is caused these dramatic alterations in human perception. So one of the hypotheses is that somehow this is affecting human consciousness and human perception. And the models of consciousness as it relates to the brain going all the way back 100 years to William James and followed by Aldous Huxley in the 1950s, this hypothesis that the brain functions as a, a filter for consciousness and that perception is as a result of that filter. Well, one of the hypotheses using that kind of a model is that the filtration potential of the brain is being manipulated by whatever this infectious entity is. But we're talking speculation here, but some of this stuff is testable. If, if the N was a lot larger in a future mm -hmm. program, this is actually testable. So from a, a Popperian sort of testability angle, it probably is worthwhile following up. It's not just speculation. It is a testable hypothesis. I know in the Hunt for the Skinwalker, you went through several possibilities of what this phenomena could be from extraterrestrial to interdimensional to a number of different things. Based on studies at NIDS and the DIA, the subsequent OSAP DIA study, what direction do you think it leans? I know there's no answer, but what direction do you think it leans in terms of the hypothesis for what's going on at the ranch? I think whatever is on the property has displayed intelligence. I think it has technology attributes. I mean, we've seen a lot of data. Other people have seen data. Brandon Fugel's team have seen data. These are nuts and bolts machines, as well as having a lot of psychic slash psychological impacts on humans. So it's a non-human intelligence associated with that technology. Now, where is that located? Where does it come from? Again, I think we have to go back to the consciousness hypothesis and the idea that human consciousness is right now and human perception is relatively limited. And we know that outside that limited bubble, we know that UFOs are located and can intrude and exit that bubble whenever they so please. So likewise, the phenomenon on Skinwalker Ranch appeared to be able to do that same thing. Now, whether or not the method of entry and exit is via these quote unquote portals, we don't know. But certainly the appearance and disappearance of these phenomena into and, out and outside human perception 
is a feature that seems to be common right across the board. So you've got mainstream scientists now like Jeffrey Kripal from Rice University, Bernardo Kastrup, who is very big in this, Edward Kelly from the University of Virginia, a whole slew of people, Federico Fahin, who is the, the inventor of the Intel chip, all saying that consciousness is larger than the ability of the human brain to manufacture consciousness. So outside this bubble of consciousness, the UFO phenomenon lies. That's the current hypothesis. Now, how do you test that? That's TBD. All right, my friend, it was a pleasure. And thank you for spending a precious hour of your time with me. And hopefully at some point in the future, I'll uh, be able to ask you some more questions. So thank you again. Absolutely. It was good to talk with you. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.